0: All right, good morning. Uh, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be uh, reading from 18 to verse uh, 1 in chapter 4. We're almost finished with the series in Colossians, and next up for us will be an Advent series in John chapters 1 and 2. We'll have uh, a devotional that'll be coming out probably sometime late next week, Uh, and so be looking for that. That'll be a great way for you to do family worship, to put into practices some of the things that Tim was teaching this morning, I'm sure, and so uh, it's just a great way for you to keep up with what we're doing and to be engaged with the sermons. Otherwise, this is just a monologue, and monologues traditionally don't work. And so, um, uh, at least in some respects. And so we want you to be engaged. That's why we give you that material. So be looking for that. All right, so to catch us up to where we are, we've just been through uh, a huge portion of Colossians where Paul is telling us to put to death some things and to put on some things, but he's laid a very firm foundation before he told us to do anything. And that firm foundation is our resurrectedness in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. And so before you can do anything of any sort of obedient value, you must first recognize yourself as chosen, holy, and beloved in Christ alone through no fault of your own. And so that's a really important distinction because otherwise, what you could hear, especially this morning as we get practical in terms of family life and job, what you could hear is that you have to earn God's love. That is not at all what Paul is saying. You cannot earn what is freely given to you. You just can't do it. But what you can do is further discover how deep the Father's love for us and display it in this world, which is why we are still here. Oftentimes, I think we forget that, that we are to, in our embodiedness, our physicalness, display God's glory and love for his people in everything we do. Now, uh, given much of what Paul's already said to us, is his expectation that we would do that perfectly? Absolutely not, which is why the, all the different warnings and all the different things that he says has the tone of being active and perpetual. It's not easy to do these things, even with all of the means of grace that we have. And so if you in any way, shape, or form were to hear Paul say, you've got to do this and you've got to do it perfectly, you're not hearing really what Paul's saying. You're actually applying a greater stricture that even Paul the apostle is applying himself. So it's important that we remember, Paul gets that we are but dust, just as God does. Paul gets that we are frail and unable to do this without help, which is why we need community, which is why we need the Holy Spirit, which is why we need the scriptures, which is why we need all of the means of grace at our disposal to be able to even come close to doing any of this stuff. So it's really important that we hear that before we start talking about husbands, childrens, children, and wives, right? Um, because this is an area... Uh, that, that we could really get lost pretty quickly. And so, with that being said, I want to ask you a question before we get into this sermon. What has most influenced your views, and even more importantly, your praxis, how you live, of family? What has most influenced how you view, whether you're, you're, you're the child, a son or daughter, or whether you are a husband or wife or whatever part of the family that you are, what has most influenced your view and how you live that out? Now, I think there's a problem. And I think the problem is we haven't really thought about this question. I think that we have operated without really thinking through all the way down, wait a second, why do I do what I do and is it even justified? Is it good? Is it Where does it come from? Remember the banks of the river for us the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Now, here's where we can spill out of the banks pretty quickly, can't we? We can say, I don't care what Christ has said husbands are supposed to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, you eclipsing the supremacy of Christ probably is not going to work out very well, no matter how gracious our God. Or you may say, yeah, I, I try, but you, you, ain't, you ain't ever lived with him. If you live with this guy, you would recognize that Christ is not sufficient enough to to deal with his idiosyncrasies. Or as parents, you could spill out of both sides of those banks of the river pretty quickly, can't you? Now, let me say this. If you have spilled out of either bank of the river, is the news all bad? No, not if you repent. Not if you repent and actually change and seek reconciliation with those whom you have transgressed the banks of said river against, including Christ, but also too, whether it's your parents or whether it's your, your, your spouse or your brother or sister, whomever it may be in family, if, if you've got breath in your lungs, that's evidence of God's grace that you can make it right. And it can be made right in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. Amen. And for those of us who've all been through difficult family situations, my hands by far are not clean. I have gone off both, both banks of the river, flown over it, excavated, made a canal, done all kind of stuff. And, um, and it's, it can be a pretty messy thing. But the Lord is so gracious. In fact, uh, I was talking with my son this week. Many of you have asked about how my, my son and daughter-in-law are doing. They're, they're doing fairly well overall. Um, uh, there's a little more to the story as, as to why this was so heavy upon her in particular. Um, and, and I won't go into that since this is being recorded. But suffice it to say, there, 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 is, there is a potential solution for if they want to get pregnant again. And so that's, that's very encouraging uh, in many respects. So I was talking to my son this week uh, and we had an hour long conversation. There's something you need to know about my son. Um, he, he doesn't talk for an hour. He's like his mother who is like her father, who has an economy of words, and they keep, there's a little meter running somewhere that no one's aware of, that when that number of words gets hit, you're, they're done for the day, the week, or how, whatever the meter runs for. And so, but, but what was so interesting to him is he was asking about, we have an anniversary coming up, and this is number 18 for us, uh, and so uh, we're the equivalent of a, a high school kid uh, going off to college at this point in our marriage, and so... Uh, <laughs> which can be exciting. Uh, and so, so he was just amazed. He was like, you know, Dad, how, what, t- tell me, what, how did you guys make it this far? Why, why are you guys, and I even told him, I said, look, I love your mom more today than the first day that, I'm, that, that I realized that I loved her. Uh, which, by the way, I told her I loved her, and she said, okay. And I was in limbo for a little while, so... Uh, <laughs> But, but I love her more now because I know her better. I know how to love her better. I know how much more God loves me and how she is a display of that, that love for me. Um, I actually teared up yesterday when she was going to Chick-fil-A to get some our dinner and our, our lunch for today, just thinking about how much she does. And I was like, you sap. Uh, and then I read a book on infinity. And so that, that got me back right. But, but my son was very intrigued by us being more in love, and so I, t- I talked with him some about how we got there, and he was, he was genuinely interested. Now, again, what you don't know is part of the great canal that I dug between the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ has almost destroyed that relationship in anger. And that, that the Lord would reconcile and allow for that conversation is not lost on me, and I am amazed every single time and in awe that God could bring that kind of reconciliation between two people for which both of us had some really terrible things to say to each other. So take heart. For those of you who are in here this morning and you have gone over the bank of the river somewhere in your family, take heart that the Lord is still on the throne. Take heart that you can be reconciled. Take heart that good things can come from ashes because the Lord is who he said he is, supreme, insufficient. But back to our question, what has influenced you most? Is it the broken, maybe the broken past of your own family? Or, or, or are you being influenced by culture? Like you're, you're very much in the lineage of Homer Simpson uh, as the head of your household, or you're very much in the lineage of Al Bundy, for those of you who go that far back, or, or what? What is, are you the idiot dad trope which is still a very common trope. Are you the super mom who can't ever seem to be as super as what Facebook says you ought be? What is influencing you in your roles and family? And I'll ask the same question about vocation. And, And so what influences how we view our jobs? Is it the Bible? Is the Bible influencing you in all of these roles? Or is it something else? And have you even thought about it? My guess is... Most of us hadn't really put a lot of thought into it, and therein the problem doth lie. When you don't think about what you're being influenced by, you have no control whatsoever what is influencing you. And you are being influenced with everything that you take it. You can like it or lump it. It just is. None of us has a filter so strong. If you're not thinking about it, you're being shaped. Nothing is neutral, as we say here often. So having said that, I want us to be, begin, if you haven't thought about it, let's begin thinking about it, and I want us to be shaped in the image of Christ. And that's Paul's desire, and again, sometimes I think we hear some of what Paul says, especially when it comes to marriage, especially when it comes to the wives, uh, and maybe even the children, uh, as, in a very harsh tone, and that's not his intent at all here. In fact, he's being so incredibly countercultural that we miss it. Oftentimes, because we hear the word submit and we shut off. The husbands don't, the wives do, oftentimes. And so I want to make sure that we're sensitive to that. But before we get there, listen to this quote from uh, Peter T. O'Brien. He says, the whole of life, both thought and conduct, is to be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. The whole of life, both thought and conduct, is to be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. No area of life stands outside his control. Now, that right there, we could just hang there, because that's really where most of us transgress the banks of the river, because we think there are areas of life that are outside of the control of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he should have no say on these things, whether it's our recreation. We, We think we're perfectly justified if someone else does something first, then we can react, or, or if we're unhappy, we can do what we want to get happy. Right? Does this sound familiar to any of you? Whereas, no, that's actually not true at all. It's whether or not, the real question is whether or not it glorifies the Lord our God and displays the beauty and, and the image of Christ. And so, no area of life stands outside his control, so there is no final distinction between the sacred and the secular. That's really important. There is no final distinction between the sacred and the secular. Yet, the household rules indicate how this obedience is concretely expressed. So what Peter O'Brien is saying, listen, all of life displays the glory of God. All of life can be. And you may say, well, yeah, well, what about, what about prostitution? That's a distortion on sexuality. That doesn't make sexuality bad. That's a distorted way of expressing our sexuality. It doesn't make it bad. So the question is whether or not we're actually displaying of all the good things that the Lord has given us, all of the things he created that he declared are in fact good, are we using them in ways that reflect his goodness, his glory, and that he gave them to us? So as we step into this, what are our concrete expressions in both home and work? Paul's going to give us some insight here. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is verses 18 through 21 in chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. There's a whole lot in that 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 we don't have time to explore the full depths of, even though he didn't really seem like he said a whole lot. But there are tons of implications, and first and foremost, any passage that you read that Paul writes about marriage and family, if you don't have a really good grasp on Genesis 1 through 3, it's really hard for you to understand straight away. And so I can't catch this up in full, but it's really important that you understand that that is the backdrop. In fact, most specifically what we call the cultural mandate. The fact that man and woman were displayed, I mean, I'm sorry, were created to display the fullness of the glory of God. Now, what that tells us straight away, and this is very important, that a man by himself cannot, no matter how hard he tries, display the fullness of the glory of God. Can't do it. It also tells us that a woman by herself, no matter how hard she tries, Cannot display the fullness of the glory of God. Let me hit the pause button right there because some of you may have just heard, oh my gosh, if I'm single, that means I can't. No, no, no. The beauty of your singleness is that the Lord gives you the church and yes, the church must do a much better job of helping display that glory in full. No matter the means of your singleness, it's very important that we recognize there's yet another way for that to be displayed, which is why marriage language is used of the church as well. So coming back in, Man and woman cannot, no one, even better, can display the glory of God by themselves no matter how hard they try. It's an impossibility. And so anytime we try to do things in and of and by ourselves, we, straight off the rip, are not even close to being biblical. What's really important that you know about this particular context is in Rome, to address the wives as if they had a choice was incredibly counter-cultural. And he does it first. Now this would have been one of those sermons that would have been like flashbulb memory type stuff. Like, wait, wait. He just just addressed us as if we have some manner of choice and equality with our husbands. Because he gives them an imperative with a qualification. And the qualification actually is even maybe more countercultural than the imperative itself. He says the thing that our culture just grits our teeth at submit. Right? Submit. Uh, and we are, that, that is such a, such a tough word. However, it's a, it's, a, it's a great word. And it's true if there is a creator and we are the crea- creature. We should, and we have to submit. At some point, you will submit to death. At some point, you will submit to the government, whether you like it or not. At some point, you will submit to something. I mean, we, we, we do it, and the better way to do it is by choice, to submit to things that are going to actually empower and embolden and display God's image-bearing in us, and to do it in a way that's going to be glorifying to God. So, since you are not sovereign and ubiquitous... And omnipresent and and omnipowerful, you're going to need to submit to something. So here, Paul's saying, do it as choice. Do it with this qualification, as it pleases the Lord or uh, as is fitting in the Lord. Here's what's countercultural about that. He didn't say, submit because the governmental patriarchy tells you you must. Because Rome said so. No, 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 that's not what he said. Submit because your husband, who is your head, demands it of you. No, that's not what he said. He said you are to submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, as would be glorifying to the Lord. So here's what he's saying with all the freight that we previously had. He's saying in the power of the resurrection... Do the thing as wife that will bring the greatest glory to God paired with yet another who is displaying the power of the resurrection. But does that sound awful to you? See, part of our problem is we don't put a lot of effort on the choice sometimes, which is why Paul says don't be unequally yoked. So wives, if you are called to do this, for those of you who are not yet married, you want to be real careful about who you yoke yourself to because the commands don't change based on your bad decisions. They just don't. And so, and so, even Peter says, if you are yoked to someone who's an unbeliever, still do the thing that's going to most bring glory to God. Now, does that mean that if your husband asks you to do something that is patently unbiblical and unglorifying to God, that, that, that you should do it? No, it would not be fitting to the Lord. So this imperative has a qualification that is incredibly important and incredibly countercultural. And then Paul moves to the men and he gives them two imperatives. He says, "And now husbands, love your wives." Now that all the freight of that comes from what we had previously read last week in verses 12 through 17, right? Remember it's love that binds everything together in harmony. So when he says, "Love your wives," he's saying, "Do all of these things compassionate in your heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience towards your wife. And even more, make sure that you are the quickest to forgive her. And even more, make sure you are the quickest to declare your love for her. And make sure even more that you are filled with the word of God and you impart it to her. So there's a whole lot of freight in that word when he says, by command, love your wife. And then he gives another imperative, which is a way for us, a way for men to know, am I doing that? Don't be harsh. Don't be harsh. Now, how many of you husbands would recognize pretty much straight away, that's actually pretty close to home. That oftentimes one of our canary in the coal mine issues is we are harsh first before we are anything else. Whether it is being harsh in our silence, do recognize this isn't just verbalized, it's the whole of your attitude and your, how you act toward your wife. Right? What you provide for her, what it is that you make sure she has in order to be able to glorify the Lord her God, your God. You can be harsh without saying a word. And so it's very important that we recognize that this is not okay with the Lord. That you never have justification, husbands. You never have justification for being harsh with your wives. Now, lest you think I am throwing stones from the glass house in which I live, this is a deep conviction to me. Who I'm sure you're shocked. I can be sharp of tongue. Uh, I sometimes can say. Th- I like being asked questions. Like I be like being poked with a hot poker. For reasons I can't explain. It's ever since I was a little kid, I'd come in to my grandmother and say, how was school today? And I would lose my mind not answering the question, get put on restriction, and I still couldn't figure out just answering the question would have been so much easier. <laughs> and so there are times, and, and I, I'm, I can be pretty Spartan. Um, and so there are times where I, I confessionally am harsh. And it grieves me. And it is evidence that I am not loving my wife well. That I am forgetting the gift that she is to me from the Lord my God. That I am failing to be compassionate in heart. That I am not displaying meekness and I am being terribly impatient. And thankfully the Lord doesn't kill me on the spot. Although I think Susan has prayed at least one or two imprecatory prayers on my behalf. At least, just tune me up a little bit, scare me, uh, and so. But but God hasn't had to do that because I, it grieves me now in ways that it hasn't always. So, husbands, if you're being harsh with your wives, you're failing to do the first command, which is to love her and to respect her as gift from God. And I know it can It's not always easy, and you may say, "Yeah, but you you don't know what I have to put up with." And that cuts both ways. And so, so uh, what I do hope that you've noted already is how this is actually the two things that Paul has said, both to wives and to husbands, has some implications from the fall itself. Remember, what would the wife struggle with? She would want to usurp her husband. It was one of the unique aspects of the fall. And so to her he says, submit as is fitting to the Lord. And how would the husband want to retaliate? He would want to retaliate with harshness and lord it over her. And to him, he says, don't be harsh with her. You love her as gift from the Lord and thus display the resurrection in your marriage. And what a powerful thing that people can know that, that your house is open and that, that it's not going to be uncomfortable if they get invited to dinner. It's not going to get weird because you, you guys can't control yourselves. Um, and so it's a, it's a great gift to our community when there, our marriages are strong. Um, and so that's why he starts here, that one of the greatest, most concrete expressions in any culture is a marriage well lived and loved. And this, this displays the beauty of the resurrection. Unless you kids think you're off the hook. You get the hardest one of all, I think. But in a way, he's actually saying you have a choice. You get to participate in the kingdom, actually. And children were not well thought of in Roman culture, for the most part. It's not like our culture, where we wear buttons with their pictures on it just because they baked a cake one time or something. And so, and so, uh, so here he says, obey your parents in everything. Which is, for you kids, you're like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. And it would be if your parents weren't displaying the power of the resurrection. You're right. You're right, to try to obey parents who aren't displaying the power of the resurrection, that is terrible. That is hard. So parents recognize that part of what he's going to say back to the fathers about not provoking your children is don't make this impossible for them. And so the children are called to obey not because of who their parents are, not because of the hierarchical system, but because of who God is. In Ephesians 6, he even says it further. He says, this is the one command that comes with a promise. It'll go long with you in the land. And so for children, um, obedience becomes a, a, a school that shapes them. And so it becomes so important, as he says to the fathers, don't provoke them. Don't provoke them. And in what ways do we provoke our children that often leave them discouraged. We say things to them like this. They get a 90-something on a test, and we ask them where the other points were. We demand perfection of them that God doesn't demand of us. They hear us speak of the church as if she were besotted and terrible, and then ask them to come and behave in church. We speak ill of the leaders of the church where they can hear, not thinking of how much they're actually processing and having no idea how much we are provoking them against the very thing that they're going to need all of their days once you're gone. We provoke our children um, by demanding that they, they fill up what is lacking in us when only Christ can do that. So it's important for you as parents that if you want to know if you are provoking your children, Think long and hard about how your parenting actually displays the gospel. One of the traps I think we fall into is because most of our lives are spent being reactionary, right? Instead of being proactive, we're just trying to, we're just trying to survive, which we know that, that phase well. We're empty nesters now. Praise God unapologetically, Uh, but we're we're empty nesters now. And um, and I remember, I remember those days when it felt like you were caught in a swiftly flowing stream. But that's exactly where the gospel becomes so incredibly important: is that you are not caught up in the forces of nature at all. You are in the sovereignty of God who controls all of history. And so you've got more liberty than you realize. So a lot of times we end up just reacting, and our reacting does this. We're just trying to get our kids to be just good. Let's just get you to be a good moral deist. You know what that is? Just obey the rules I've given you. Don't stab your sister with a pencil in the eye. That is all I ask of you. How much more am I asking you to do? Is that so hard? Right? Right? And so all we're doing at times instead of helping shape our children's hearts and minds in the power of the gospel is we're just giving them rules so we can get from one phase to the next and all the while we are excavating their hearts and minds just in the same way that Jesus said you cast out one demon, sweep the place clean, don't put anything back and what comes in is worse than was at the start. So be careful parents. It's, it's, it's trying to... Uh, uh, be married in the light of the gospel and parent in light of the gospel. Easy, being fallen creatures in a fallen world. No, and Paul's not saying that it is. Don't mince, don't mix up his simplicity of words with thinking he doesn't get it. He does, which is why he spent the previous verses trying to display to you the glory of who Christ is and all the stuff you got to put off and put on before you can even talk about this. And so. Are you going to get it perfect? No, you're not. But do the best you can and keep coming back to the gospel and keep applying the gospel as an embodied experience because the resurrection is not just for the future, it's now. And you can do these things. Take heart. And this is why we need each other. This is why we need community. And this is why our marriages cannot be off limits for discussing in community. But let me give you an asterisk here. Um, you got to be wise in how you, how you talk about things because domestic situations are very complex and difficult. Let me give you an example. If Susan came to if on the ladies' retreat, Susan had gotten them, part of her testimony was, um, uh, I'm trying to think of something appropriate here that's actually not true. Uh, uh, Cameron calls me a, a bearded turkey. And, and says that, you know, that's, that's what I look like most days. He's like, he rolls over and says, I married a bearded turkey. That's awesome. And then, so you guys hear that and you're like, wow, Cameron is wor- maybe worse than I thought. Uh, or exactly what I thought. And so, and so, but Susan and I are reconciled. Like she comes home and, and says, hey, it really hurts me when you call me a bearded turkey. And I'm like, oh, you know what, I'm sorry. I'll quit doing that. But what does that mean for me and you? We're not reconciled. And so this is why you got to be careful in in how you communicate about your spouse to other people. You do need safe places to tell the truth. You do. But you need to be careful of those places, and you need to make sure you go back and tell the whole story if reconciliation comes. Because otherwise... Your spouse is going to be left with a whole group of people who think they're awful. This is why you don't do marriage on Facebook. I'm serious. Don't talk about your marital problems on Facebook. That is not the place to air out your dirty laundry. It's just not. And be very careful, all right? And so same thing with your children, how you talk about your children to other people. So be careful. We do need community. God has provided it. We do need safe places. We do. But, but, but show some wisdom. Make sure you're showing wisdom. Listen at what H.C.G. Uh, Mule says about this passage. I love this quote, because the way it starts off, you're thinking, oh my gosh, he's describing something utterly impossible, and then he flips and tells the truth. He says, for on the one hand, the Christian home is truly the masterpiece of the applied gospel. The scene of the loveliest manifestations of its spirit And then also the source or reservoir out of which its noblest influence is to flow all around. That ain't even Christmas yet, and how many of you are there? (laughs) Listen to what he says, though. He says, on the other hand, home is the place of all others where it is most easy for us forgetful sinners not to live in the full light and power of the gospel. It is the place where we most easily go off our guard, where small inconsistencies are most readily allowed to grow into habits, where the member of the circle may only too lightly act as if there were less need there than elsewhere of the fullness of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Lord in the heart, the surrender of of the whole life to God. See, that's the trap as we look at home and we think, wow, and it's true, it is where the masterpiece of the gospel can be so beautifully displayed. Don't get me wrong, but it is also the place where we so quickly and easily forget what a terrible testimony if our children and our wives think we love everybody else better than them. We love everybody else more in the gospel than we do them. In fact, it should be the other way around to what the world should see as, man, you so love your family that I could trust you with things of the gospel. Amen? So, here's the question. How are you displaying the resurrection in your family? That's a great question. And you should go through each of the roles, right? If you're a son or daughter, which you got to be to be here, by the way, just, just quick biology. Uh, think about that. It doesn't matter how old you are. If your parents are still with you, there's still a role for you to play in their lives. So how are you thinking that through in light of the gospel at this point? In fact, it can get more complex as we get older and those roles seem to kind of take on, flip or do different things. If you're a husband or a wife, how are you living out the resurrection in that role, displaying the glory of Christ Again, not perfectly, but how are you striving toward that? How are you leaning into that? How are you cultivating that? And for the children uh, as well to be thinking through these things. So as a family, I think it would be a good thing if we'd have an honest conversation about this. Make sure it's okay that you're ready to hear it uh, in full. But it could be one of the best conversations you're ever going to have if you can take the truth that will come your way. Now, let's turn back to the text and see what it looks like to display the resurrection in our vocations. I want to get put an asterisk here because there's going to be language of bond, servant, and master. And there are many scholars who do not think that this should be in any way applied to vocation. I, I still think it can. But we just need to remember that their circumstances were very different in the Roman world. And I don't want to minimize the slavery aspect. To be a bond servant, I don't think was all that great uh, in Rome as it would be today, which we actually have potentially more slaves today than we've had at any other time in history. Um, and so, so I don't want to minimize that language. But, but let's think of it for most of us. I don't know of any of us who are in a slavery situation. And so let's think of it in terms of how we could apply, in terms of a business owner, worker, Um, and and be able to display the glory of God in that. So if you would, listen to the text. Beginning in verse 22, Slaves or bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves or bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, we miss how amazingly countercultural and earth shattering this would have been for Paul to say that a bondservant could do anything of value, that he had some measure of contribution and control. Even more importantly, if he's talking to bond servants and masters, what does that mean that there were in that congregation? Both. Which that in and of itself would have been amazing kingdom displaying type stuff. And so just in the same way that he addresses the wives and the children and saying, you've got a role to play in the kingdom, you can do something that has eternal value, he starts straight away with the bond servants or slaves. And in the backdrop of this, because we know that Onesimus, who is the freed slave and from the book of Philemon, is part of this congregation, don't forget the book of Philemon, in which he says to the master to receive Onesimus differently than he had done before, because now they were brothers in Christ. This transcends all of that. And so, straight away, he makes it clear that a bondservant, because of the sovereignty of God, has the ability to actually glorify God. And then it matters what he does when his regular master is not watching. How many of us, as workers, oftentimes steal time? Because nobody's watching. But if the boss comes around, suddenly we get busy, we look excited to be there, we get productive right? That's not okay. It's not okay for us to think that just because no human is watching that we can live in any way that we please or work in any way that we please. We've talked about this in here before. Good, a job well done, and great craftsmanship are inarguably appreciated by all. Everybody appreciates a job well done. And so much of what gets done are not jobs well done. So much of what gets done is not great craftsmanship. It's all about speed and efficiency and being cheap and getting it done and moving on to the next thing. Instead of considering long and hard how, what we, how we do what we do has this phenomenal, phenomenal ability to display the glory of God. I saw it all the time just even as a... As a physical therapists, how it meant so much to people for us not to let the insurance dictate whether or not they got exactly what they needed, that we would go the extra mile, that we would find ways not to circumvent the insurance company, because that would be wrong on the other side, but ways to provide what they needed so that they could be well taken care of, and they always appreciated it and saw that we were different, and it did open up conversations about the gospel, in fact. I saw a number of people actually come to Christ in my 15 years of being a physical therapist because those conversations were better had because they're like, man, you're something different about how you do what you do. And so much of that was just doing my job well and caring about the people who were in front of me and what it was I did. In the same way Paul's saying, what you do, you do for eternal purpose. It has eternal implications. It can actually matter what you do. And you may say, yeah, but I, I pick up trash or I, or I work on, I don't even talk to people all day. I just work on computers from my house or whatever. It doesn't matter. Do it, whatever it is that you do, do it really, really well. Heartily as unto the Lord, right? Um, I, I know there's some folks in here who are in the restaurant business. It doesn't take but one bad experience usually, right? For a customer to be like, I'm done. And not only Are they done? They then go and tell, as the rule is, between 60 and 80 people. They tell everybody they know how horrible the experience was. So what we do matters, and we know that to be true. And Paul's just saying what we already know to be true, but he's casting in light of eternity. And so we we have the ability, just as they did, to show purpose and self-control and excellent work ethic. And that can translate into things far beyond, right? And in the same way, it's not just to the bond servant. He says to the master, which would be the company owner, he gives them a pretty strong imperative as well. He says, treat those who work for you the same way God's treated you, justly and fairly. But you got to understand, in that world, for uh, an employer to care anything about justice and fairness was foreign, completely foreign to them. Why? Because the workers were just cogs in the machine. They were beasts of burden. It's fascinating. Fascinating to, to think about the power that they had to display the glory of the gospel. That Paul is saying to the bond servants, you are not beasts of burden. You are not cogs in a machine. You are children in a kingdom. And he says to the masters, you, you don't dictate. You are not the master. There is a master above you. And you too are to be glorifying him in the kingdom. There's a great video. I don't know how many of you have heard of a man named Simon Sinek. Um, And he talks about, uh, in this, he does a lot of leadership videos. And in this one particular video, he's talking about, um, I believe it was a textile company in Kansas, if I'm remembering it right. And they had called, I mean, they had had 20% of their total revenue dropped overnight uh, related to kind of a, a world event. So they call in the the brain trust. And of course, what do you think is the first thing, the first option that is often looked at when you lose 20% of your profit? Layoffs. And of course, that was the first thing up and the guy who was in charge said, no, we're not doing that. We're not gonna lay anybody off. In fact, it would be better for all of us to hurt a little bit than one person or a few people to have to hurt a whole lot. And so what he did is he implemented uh, this system where they had to take four weeks. Everybody had to take uh, four weeks of unpaid time off. Okay? Everybody from the highest to the lowest. And then what they allowed was um, if anybody wanted to trade weeks, like if there was somebody that taking four weeks off would be devastating too, And then there was somebody who could take eight weeks off and it wouldn't hurt them much at all. They could actually trade their weeks to those people regardless of what it was they made. They didn't have any distinction whatsoever. And what they found is people began to trade weeks when they found out people's stories. And so somebody that that made a lot more money, they would take eight or 10 weeks that would allow others to only suffer one or two. And guess what happened? They made money. They made money and survived and no one was laid off. Now, what a powerful and creative and beautiful display of what we can do when we are creative in our thinking and we care about other people. And I don't know if that person who did that was a believer because I don't know if Simon Sinek really is a believer either, um, but it is, to us, it's a powerful story and it's a true story. And would that every Christian business owner had that kind of mindset. I know many who do. And praise God for you. But know that how we live in our families, how we display the resurrection in our families, how we display the resurrection in our vocations, it matters. And think about why would Paul pick those two places? Well, I think there's two really important reasons. One is because that's the creation mandate. And the creation mandate was not lost in the fall, by the way. We are still called to be fruitful, multiply, and to have dominion. We are. And sometimes I think we forget that that's actually still true of of us and the sovereign Lord that we have. Now, that doesn't mean that you go to Whole Foods and be like, hey, I've got dominion. I'm giving you 15% less than what it says on the screen there. My pastor said, I've got dominion. I'm not paying it. But you could try it. I'd love to see how it goes for you. If it works, call me. I'm going to come get right behind you. But that's not how this works. And so here Paul is referring us back to the resurrection should be displayed in what it was we were created for because we are being restored to what it was we were created for. I also think he picks those two things because that's where we spend the majority of our time. It's where the majority of our life is expressed and spent. So there should be concrete expression in both of those places. Listen to what Gerard Manley Hopkins in his notebooks and papers says. I love this quote for the whole of this. He says, smiting on the anvil, sawing a beam, whitewashing a wall, driving horses, sweeping, scouring, everything. Gives God some glory if being in his grace, you do it as your duty. To go to communion worthily gives God great glory, but to take food and thankfulness and temperance gives him glory too. He is so great that all things give him glory, if you mean they should. So then, my brothers and sisters, live. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. Is it's, not, it's not asking us to be otherworldly. It's not asking us to be less human it's calling, or superhuman. It's actually just calling us to be human as we were designed to be. Amen? And that's good news to us, and it provides all that we need so that we can live. This is to be an embodied experience. We are to enjoy all of the gifts that God gives to us. So, how are you displaying the power of the resurrection in your job? And this is, this is one of the places of great dignity. I know some of you, this is a tough, this would be a tough question because maybe you hate your job or you don't have the job that you would like or you don't have what you need to provide for your family. Take and, and honor the Lord with whatever he gives you that day. And so, how are you displaying the resurrection? Because there's no excuse, there's no circumstance where you can say you don't have to. So what do we learn from Colossians three eighteen through 4, 1? Well, that it teaches us that we are to display the resurrection in our family and in our vocation. And if you're not thinking about that, if you're not being intentional about that, if you're not following up on that, if you think it's kind of a one and done deal, you miss it. This is an active and a perpetual need, is it not? I remember one of the stories I've told you guys, I won't tell it in full, but on one of the days where... I really, thought I, I really thought I'd turned a corner as a father. Uh, my, my time in the Word was amazing. Prayer was amazing. I, I, I kind of felt like I maybe was shining a little bit. And it didn't take 30 seconds of my daughter and son going at each other for me to absolutely lose every bit of religion I think I've ever had uh, or any, any evidence of it. And destroy, there was a poor laundry basket that was destroyed into dust. They didn't do anything wrong, but it was a source of great anger. My kids still tell that story uh, and laugh about it. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so I get it. We're not always going to get this right, but recognize apply the gospel to your failure. Which way do you run when you sin? But make sure you're thinking about it because you're being influenced in these two areas in ways that are not good if you're not careful. Uh, Oftentimes, and the statistics show this, in a group of friends, uh, divorce oftentimes is almost like a spreading metastatic cancer. Why is that? Well, because people are being influenced by something other than the gospel, oftentimes. How we treat our children. There's statistics that show that uh, with with the rise of abortion, there's also been a rise in child abuse. That's the opposite of one of the arguments for abortion, by the way. The statistics just bear it out, that when you think a child can be killed at any point along the way, why would you treat them different in life? And so these things, ideas, have consequences. So you need to make sure that you're being influenced in the two great areas for which you were created by Scripture itself. This is something that requires conversation. There's there's situations that are tough, because some of you could hear uh, something distorted and think that you have to suffer abuse and all this kind of stuff in order to glorify God. No, you do not. That's why the, qualification, uh, the qualifications are what they are. And this is something we need to be as a church talking about and helping each other through because you cannot do it on your own. And so know that what Paul is saying to us is he's, is he's calling for us to display what we were designed in the two areas that we were specifically designed to display our humanness in God's glory, family and vocation. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that that which you created us for, Christ, is restoring us to and even growing us further into our humanness. God, we give you thanks that you entrust family and vocation to us, that you give us the things that you give us and you bless the work of our hands. God, we give you thanks that you grant us opportunities to grow in sanctification and learn about you in ways that are impossible outside of these two things. And God, I know that there are those in here who are suffering in various ways in family and vocation. Would you, in the power of your spirit, um, help them to see the beauty of reconciliation, the beauty of your love for them, uh, the beauty of what is to come uh, as they apply the truth and the beauty of the gospel. God, help us to be a church who is influenced mo- in these two areas most by the Bible. Your word, your, your character, your attributes, may they be displayed in us, in our families, and in our work. God, I pray that this would be something that we would not just think we have just talked about now and just move on from, but that it would be the ongoing conversation it's it's designed to be. Help us to be a church that loves each other well in these two areas. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.